Boeing's Starliner Redo Part 2. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Boeing's Starliner is set for yet another test mission, a critical step before NASA lets its astronauts fly to space in it. An attempt to launch the capsule designed for NASA's commercial crew program back in 2019 left the ground but failed to reach the space station. An attempt at a new mission earlier this year was delayed due to faulty valves on the vehicle used to steer it in space. As Boeing works to work out the kinks, NASA's other partner, SpaceX, is sending astronauts regularly to the station. So what's at stake for Boeing, and why is having two providers so important for NASA? We'll talk with space policy analyst Laura Forsick about the pressure Boeing's Starliner faces. Then, Frank Borman commanded the first crewed mission around the moon in 1968, an incredibly risky but critical mission that got the first astronauts to the moon. Borman and Apollo 8 succeeded, but the mission took a tremendous toll on his wife, Susan. A new book, Far Side of the Moon, Apollo 8 Commander Frank Borman and the Woman Who Gave Him Wings, examines the role astronauts' wives played in the space race and the enormous price they paid. We'll talk with author Lisa Jorgensen about her book. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Later this week, Boeing will attempt once again to launch its Starliner spacecraft, designed to launch NASA astronauts to the International Space Station. An uncrewed attempt to test the vehicle back in 2019 failed to reach the station due to issues with the vehicle's software. Boeing will once again try to prove to NASA its vehicle is ready to transport astronauts. There's much at stake for both Boeing and NASA for this mission to be a success. Here to break it down is Laura Forsick, a space policy analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again. So this is a big test for both Boeing and NASA. I want to ask you first, what's at stake for Boeing here? How important is this mission? Boeing has a lot on the line here in terms of its reputation with NASA with human spaceflight. They were chosen along with SpaceX back in 2010 and 2014 as a a favorite. Everyone thought that Boeing would be a sure winner because of their long history in spaceflight. And these delays, these setbacks with Starliner are embarrassing. And not only are they embarrassing, they are expensive. So this is a what's called a fixed price contract, which means that NASA pays a fixed amount of money to Boeing and any extra delays or setbacks, hardware problems, software problems, they need to take that money and eat it. So Boeing is losing money each time they delay. So this is not costing the taxpayers anything outside of the initial NASA contract, right? That's correct, except you can think that it is costing in terms of redundancy because it's a peace of mind to have two dissimilar systems working at once, SpaceX Dragon, Boeing Starliner. So NASA would really prefer that peace of mind. And so you can say that it's not costing monetarily, but it is costing the, the human spaceflight program. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about some of the things that that this is important for NASA um, in a bit, but let, let's go back to some of these costly delays that you mentioned earlier. Why has it taken so long? The, 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 the first Operation Flight Test happened back in 2019, and, and we're just now getting to 
getting it back on the pad once again for a redo of a redo. What have what have been the challenges for for this project getting to the space station? Back in 2019, they did Boeing did conduct a uncrewed test flight of Starliner on an Atlas V. However, there was a major software problem, which would have been catastrophic if it hadn't um, if it had gone just the wrong way even more. And so there was absolute certainty that that needed to be fixed before putting humans on board. And then um, back last year. No surprise to your listeners, I'm sure, but Florida is humid and the humidity did not work well with Boeing's valves. And so some of those valves stuck and they needed to go back to the to the drawing board and figure out why their valves were sticking and how to fix that problem. So there's been a number of setbacks, both hardware and software. NASA also recently admitted that it did not put enough resources, you know, engineering resources, that kind of technical support to Boeing. They actually gave more to SpaceX because they assumed that SpaceX would need more help. And that is a startling admission because not only were these two contractors not treated equally, SpaceX has been flying Dragon successfully now since 2020, and Boeing's been the one who needs the help. You cannot not see the optics of this, right? As Boeing is struggling to leave the ground, SpaceX is not only launching NASA astronauts per this commercial crew contract, but it's also launching private astronauts. I mean, how how does this look for Boeing to when when you look at its competitor is so successful at this? Yeah, it truly is embarrassing. But of course, this is something new to both companies. Neither company had flown people to orbit before. And what this demonstrates is, is that it's a lot harder than it looks. And the philosophy or the, the drive that SpaceX has worked out in its favor. However, um, Boeing does have a long history of space hardware, including the International Space Station. They have built several of the components on the ISS. So um, it is embarrassing that Starliner isn't working. But at the same time, I think that in the end, Boeing will succeed and that Starliner will get flying soon. Do any of the other issues that the Boeing Corporation have been struggling with over the past few years have any effect on on Starliner? I'm thinking some of the software issues on its commercial aircrafts. I mean, is is there kind of this this sense that the culture at Boeing is is has a difficult time with with software? It could be. I am no expert on the aviation side of things, but it definitely shows that there is a company wide problem that perhaps needs a company wide solution more than just the Starliner issue. And so, what Boeing needs to do is to look to see where it needs these improvements, the systematic problems that they really need to solve, because this won't be the end, right? Boeing is also working on several other NASA contracts, um, one being the Space Launch System that has also suffered delays. So. Boeing really needs to figure out where its systematic problems are so it can fix it, um, you know, program-wide, <laughs> company-wide, rather than just program-specific. We talked about why this is so important for Boeing, and, and you made mention as to why this is very important for NASA, and you talked about redundancy. Um, why does NASA need Boeing to succeed? NASA had been flying with the Russians on Soyuz since the space shuttle retired in 2011. And... NASA gave those two contracts to SpaceX and to Boeing in the hopes that they would quickly be able to replace that human spaceflight capability. So NASA needs a ride, right? And it's a good thing that SpaceX has been able to give NASA astronauts and partners a ride up to the space station since now we have this uh, difficulty with the Russian space program, Roscosmos, and Russia in general with the war in Ukraine. And so it would be a real problem if we were still relying on Russia to get our astronauts 
astronauts up to the space station would be a huge national embarrassment for one thing, not to mention a national security issue. So SpaceX has been flying, but that's one system. Dragon so far has been working flawlessly with the exception of a toilet, right? But um, we don't want to rely on one system. We we realize this was with the space shuttle, right? When the system goes down, when there's an unexpected problem, then that means everything halts. And unless there's another system that can keep on flying, a dissimilar redundancy is what they call it. So they want both Dragon and Starliner to be up and running in case one of them needs to pause. Mm-hmm. And, and you kind of touched upon this, but I mean, this had been an issue, you know, since the end of the space shuttle program, having some sort of way up there. But has has this the, the kind of pressure to get Boeing up and running been exacerbated by the growing tension between the United States and Russia and not being able to have those seats? I don't know if the two are related, but certainly if I was Boeing, I'd be concerned about that. I'd want to, you know, just like how SpaceX has sort of said, hey, we are now capable. We are that. If you're familiar with the jokes that um, the the head of Roscosmos has given, we are the trampoline that gets NASA astronauts to space. We are the broomsticks that gets NASA astronauts to space. This is the joke that is a play on some of the adversarial words that have been coming out of Russia. You know, I'm sure Boeing would like to join in and say we too can offer this really crucial capability that the United States needs, that NASA needs, but they haven't been able to do so yet. Mm -hmm. What's NASA's response been to these delays? And are they expressing optimism in this upcoming OFT2 flight? Yeah, on the surface, everybody is expressing optimism, hope that now that um, some of these problems have been discovered, that they have also been solved. And that's really key. There has been uh, some concerns. There was a safety panel uh, meeting a few days ago that there might be rush between, you know, this is a successful uncrewed flight um, currently scheduled for Thursday, that there might be a rush then to put crew on the next Starliner and launch them very quickly. And so that particular advisory panel has been warning NASA not to rush, to take its time, um, you know, but on the surface, NASA is really hopeful that this is going to succeed. And what about you? I mean, you're a a watcher of space um, and an analyst of of the industry. Does does this bode well this week? And and do you think that, that this would be a successful launch come Thursday? I hope so. No no one can predict the future, right? If I could predict the future, I'd be a lot better at my business. But one thing that we can do is hope. I support, you know, all human spaceflight. And so if we can get two different systems going, you know, Boeing is not going after the same market that SpaceX is. You mentioned that SpaceX is going after private spaceflight. That's not something that Boeing is likely to do. So what Boeing can do is they can provide that capability to send government astronauts to the space station or to future commercial space stations. And that is needed. That was Laura Forsick, space policy analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Still to come, the toll spaceflight took on Susan Borman, wife of Apollo 8 commander Frank Borman. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. 
Frank Borman commanded the first crewed mission around the moon in 1968, an incredibly risky but critical mission that got the first astronauts to the surface of the moon. Borman and Apollo 8 succeeded, but the mission took a tremendous toll on his wife, Susan. A new book, Far Side of the Moon, Apollo 8 Commander Frank Borman and the Woman Who Gave Him Wings, examines the role astronauts' wives played in the space race and the enormous price they paid. We're joined now by author Lisa Jorgensen. Lisa, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me, Brendan. Lisa, I, I like to ask this question to all the authors we have on the show. Um, how did you stumble across this story? I love this question. Um, so I have watched pretty much everything about the Apollo space program with my husband. He has been a fan of that era for as long as I've known him. And I started really noticing in the documentaries and all of the different things that uh, we had seen that I didn't really know much about the wives and the families and what they were going through during that period. And so I started doing some research and there was something about Frank and Susan's story that really captivated me, Susan in particular. And so we reached out to Frank who lives in Billings, Montana and asked if we could meet him. And we drove down there and we had a lovely breakfast with him. And I just explained to him that I really wanted to tell this story from Susan's perspective. And he agreed, he agreed. And his, his beautiful wife was in a long-term care facility at that point and she had Alzheimer's, but he, he really agreed with me that the wives and, and the families hadn't really been represented in the way that they should and celebrated in the way that they should. And so he got on board and was just incredibly supportive through this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I mean, I, I noticed the same thing as well. I'm doing my first watch through of, of For All Mankind. And um, I like you, I, I watched all of the documentaries and films about Apollo and, and the wives are prominent figures. Um, but but before before we dive in, into that, I, I want you to take us back to Apollo 8, because I think this mission is important in, in getting some context as to as to why Susan had to be so supportive of this, because this was a really dangerous mission, right? I mean, take us back to Apollo 8, the risk that Frank and his crew put himself through, and and what Susan had to deal with back here on Earth. Yeah, it was an incredibly dangerous mission, because it was going to be the very first one that actually left Earth's orbit to go to the moon. And because of the Apollo 1 fire that uh, killed Ed White, which was actually Frank's best friend, and the other two astronauts in there, um, Frank was put in charge of the redesign of the command module. Now, Congress really was uptight about what happened uh, during that fire, and they wanted to cancel the program. But Apollo 8 was going to be the mission that was going to convince them whether they were going to cancel it or not. And so Frank was given that responsibility. Now also remember during the 60s, it was an incredibly tumultuous time. And the Cold War was, along with Vietnam, but the Cold War was really Frank's personal mission to beat the Russians 
which is why they actually had 18 months to get ready for this mission. And they knocked it down to four months in order to beat the Russians to the moon. And essentially be, that would be the first domino in, in dismantling the Soviet Union, right? That psychological warfare of we can beat you. And Frank was really motivated by that, but it made it that much more dangerous. And this is untried, untested technology that these three men just agreed to be a part of. And it was an analog world. We have more technology in our phones than they were using at that time. So it was incredibly dangerous. And how did Susan feel about it? She, as always, was incredibly supportive and believed in what Frank was doing. But Bill Anders actually said that there was about a 30% chance of success with this mission. <laughs> so when you're dealing with a 70% chance of failure and the fact that you wouldn't ever see your, your husband again. And she was actually mentally preparing herself to be a widow. That is absolutely incredible to, th to think that. Um, and has, that has to have enormous strain on, on that person. I mean, how did this kind of impact Susan, I mean, in the book, you talk about how they would go to these public events together as, you know, Team Borman and all that. But but this had to have, have taken an extreme toll on, on Susan behind the scenes, didn't it? Yes. And it actually started when, again, they were very close to the Whites. And so Susan spent a lot of time with Pat White after Ed was killed. And she started seeing that the the danger because it was so personal now, even though she had been part of Frank's life through his whole military career. And when he was a test pilot, there were funerals happening all the time because that was an incredibly dangerous job. But there was something about losing someone so close to them in such a horrible way that just kind of set that, it, it, it flipped a switch in her brain that Frank is going to be the next one. And it played havoc with her mental state. And there was no one to talk to about that. NASA didn't provide any kind of mental or emotional support for the women. They just had to suck it up. They had to always look perfect when they left the house because there were reporters everywhere constantly. Um, they had a Life magazine uh, journalist almost living with them, <laughs> kind of wandering around their house all the time. It was just very invasive. And you had to try to pretend that you were completely fine and everything was great and suffer in silence. She, she turned to alcohol because of, of, of this. I mean, can you talk a little bit about kind of the, the physical and mental toll this took on her? Yeah. And, and all of the wives that are still with us that I was able to speak to, um, they all said, we basically just drank and chain smoked <laughs> in somebody's yard constantly. And she said, Susan was the one person who eventually dealt with that problem. But she said, we actually all drank constantly because it was the only way to kind of calm our nerves and and essentially get through these really intense times. But 
because of Susan's mental health, and I, I believe she she suffered with depression, and uh, most people that are have a precursor for Alzheimer's, depression is it, it shows up earlier on, and of no one spoke about that or or there wasn't really again any support for that, and you had to just hide it. So that's what she did, but she used alcohol to medicate and to help her with that, but she never ever dropped the ball or let anyone down. And no one knew, no one knew that she was having to do this because she was always on top of things and camera ready and nobody knew. Did, did she get the help she needed eventually? Yes, she did. After Frank retired and he ended up taking over, um, he, would, he ended up being the CEO at Eastern Airlines. And it was during that period when she was no longer needed by her boys because they were both at West Point and she was by herself all the time. It all, it all kind of hit her. And she ended up having to go to a facility for four months and essentially work through everything from her childhood trauma to all of the stuff that she had pushed down during her life with this incredibly intense man who it was mission first family second and that is actually when Frank really started to realize and own what he had done to contribute to her suffering so it was an amazing time of healing for both of them but it was a very difficult thing for them to Mm -hmm. both go through how does Frank reflect on on that time in his life now um you know, you mentioned you had a chance to speak with him and and have access to his his letters. Um, how does he reflect on it now? He still carries the weight of guilt that he not only did that to Susan, but his boys and how his his drive um, really caused his family some pain. But it is literally how he is wired. I, I don't know that anybody could have done what he did. And I always say, no Frank Borman, no moon landing. Because if he hadn't been wired that way, and if he hadn't pushed, and if he hadn't gotten Apollo 8 to the moon and back safely, there would be no... Apollo program following and there would be no moon landing. It was because of Frank's drive. And so he's, he was constantly balancing the weight of this destiny. He always felt that he had with the cost that is, you know, that his family had the the cost to his family. I I guess I want to ask you, is, is this story, obviously it's in your book, far side of the moon, Apollo 8 Commander Frank Borman and the woman who gave him wings. Do you think that this is this is an undertold story? I mean, we mentioned at the start of this conversation the reason that you you dug into this is because we were we were, we've been watching these documentaries and 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 dramas based around that Apollo era and and the women were prominent but they were very supportive in all of those movies, right? We don't really see this other side of things. Do do, do we really know the true cost of the moon race on the people around these astronauts. Yeah, it, it was it was interesting because as 
everything unfolded while I was doing my research, I really started to understand why this was so important. This, this actual mission, 1968 was, was a really difficult year in the US. And I remember Frank telling me that he got all kinds of telegrams after he landed from politicians and celebrities. And, and there was one telegram from just a regular person that just said, thank you for saving 1968. Because it's like the whole world came together with all of the division that had been happening to really witness a miracle, right? And when they, and when they read from Genesis, it was just this moment of peace on December 24th with the TV, all the TVs tuned in. It was just an amazing and I think necessary thing for the country at the time. And the wives, I believe, had an understanding of that even though they were basically single mothers who never saw their husbands, they had an understanding of what this would mean. And that is why they were so supportive. And they just, they were hardwired to be that way because they all had come from a military life with their husbands. And so they were in it together, but at the same time, I don't believe that this story has been told in the way that I tried to tell it, which gives context to why they were willing to pay the price. And, and finally, Lisa, um, NASA is about to embark on another Apollo 8 style mission um, in its its new program, Artemis 2, that's going to send a crew on on pretty much same mission around the moon and back. Um, do you think the agency has learned from this or, or do you worry for the folks that are going to be supporting these three or four astronauts that are going to be following in Frank and his crew and Apollo 8's footsteps around the moon. I, I want to believe that they, they absolutely have learned. I mean, NASA was brand new when Frank and Susan showed up in the early 60s. He was part of the new nine. So they were just making it up as they went along. They were you know trying to set things up and there was no housing. But I believe that, yes, they have learned. But at the same time, I, I understand that no matter what kind of high-intensity job you have, whether you're a first responder or in the military, th there is an impact on the family, regardless of how many things we've learned, hopefully, since then. And it is a stressful thing to carry because your spouse may not come home. And that is just something they learn to live with. Lisa Jorgensen is the author of Far Side of the Moon, Apollo 8 Commander Frank Borman, and The Woman Who Gave Him Wings. Um, Lisa, thank you so much for this really insightful conversation and, and for sharing this book with us. Thank you so much, Brandon. And I really enjoyed our conversation. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can visit WMFE.org slash space. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. 
Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.